Let's open our Bibles together tonight to the Word of God in the book of Ephesians. We'll start to read in Ephesians 1 at verse 15. We'll read through verse 10 of Ephesians 2. This is the epistle in which the Holy Spirit teaches us the glory of the church of Christ. You remember that the Apostle Paul is led to begin the epistle with some of the most profound uh, teachings of doctrine uh, concerning God and his eternal counsel his eternal will for the glory of his name. And we'll start to read then at verse 15. And we'll read, as I said, through chapter 2, verse 10. And we're going to be looking at the words in chapter 2, the verses 4 through 7 tonight. Beginning our reading then, God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being lightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead And set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world. But also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things. For or to the church. Which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. May God sanctify these wonderful words in our hearts. The text, as I said, will be the verses 4 through 7. And let's read that one more time. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. But God, those two words contain all the truth of the 66 books of the Bible. Those two words contain the truth of the unsearchable wisdom and the wondrous grace of God to us. But God. On the other side of those two words is sin and hopelessness and despair and death and wrath and darkness. But God, those are the words of hope, salvation, courage, comfort, the words of salvation to us. But God, That's the answer to your sin. But God, that's the answer to the trials, troubles, sorrows that you carry, that that you carry into God's house tonight. Whatever your situation, wherever you are, but God, that's the answer to all that can be against us. It's the rock of our salvation, pointing to God. And what God has done for us of mere grace through his son, Jesus Christ, looking to him and what he has done, this is our refuge. This is our unshakable comfort. But God. And that's what we have to learn to say in this world. The scriptures tonight would have us stand... The Holy Spirit would have us stand, not simply in the knowledge of our salvation, but in the utter amazement of our salvation. And the scriptures would teach us to not simply talk about our salvation, but cherish our salvation, which is in Jesus Christ by grace alone. 
The Apostle Paul tells us at verse 15 that when he heard of the faith of the saints in, in Ephesus and of their love for all their fellow saints, that he was moved to give thanks to God. And in that thanks, he began to offer a prayer for them. And the prayer really has this Heart, the heart of the prayer is really this, that the saints in Ephesus and you and I might stand in utter amazement of the work of God for us in our salvation. His prayer, beginning at verse 17 and following, is that our hearts might undergo an expansion by the Holy Spirit and that our understanding of the greatness, the exceeding greatness, he says, literally the mega greatness of God and his mighty power of salvation, that these things might be illuminated to our hearts. In the whole passage, the Apostle Paul is expressing a deep passion he is trying to express what cannot really be comprehended or expressed with words. He piles up words. He creates language in the text. He doesn't just speak of power, but mega power, not riches, but exceeding riches, exceeding greatness. He looks for words to show us the greatness, the amazing character of our salvation. But then in chapter 2, he knows under inspiration that if we are to know something that is great, exceedingly great, we can only know that by way of contrast. And so in the first three verses, he sets before us a contrast to the words, but God, and those first three verses are about our sin, as I said, our hopelessness. And against that contrast, he brings the word, but God. And that's the word that we have to hear tonight. We place two words over against all that could possibly be against us in this world. All that we might ever experience of sorrow, death, sin, hopelessness, we come against them with two words. But God. So I call your attention to that for a few moments tonight. And I'd like to point out the contrast, a great contrast. And secondly, the apostle follows that contrast with a great blessing that we have been uh, quickened together, made alive with Christ. And then finally, the apostle teaches us the great purpose of God in our salvation. That's verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness in us. So, but God is the theme. There's a great contrast. There's a great blessing and there's a great purpose of God for our salvation. So as I have been saying, the words but God intend to introduce a contrast to the preceding. And this, you might remember, is frequently employed by the Holy Spirit in the Apostle Paul 
in his epistles, not only in the epistles. If you pay attention to it throughout the scriptures and the Psalms, you must pay attention to that word, but, which is placed always in opposition to that which is dark and evil, but, and so the Apostle Paul will use that, that form to bring a contrast, to show the greatness of something. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he lists the consequences if Christ is not risen. We are yet in our sins. We are of all men most miserable. And then verse 20 he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead. You might recall in Romans chapter 3 when he has taught the depravity of the human race and said the whole world is guilty before God. And then he follows in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God is revealed from grace unto grace. So we have here a contrast, a contrast between what we are, verses 1 through 3, and what we would deserve, and who God is, and what God has done for us. It's a contrast between what we would expect and what God has actually given to us in Christ. It's a contrast between who I am, who you are, and who God is, and what God has done for us. It's the greatest conceivable contrast. And those words, but God, point to the greatest conceivable good in your life. God, and what God has done for you. What he alone can do. The greatest good is God himself. And what he has done for us. And the God of the Bible. The sovereign God. Not a God who is benevolent. But basically weak. Would like to do certain things. But many things are out of our, his hands. Not the God who does not control you. So that he cannot have you. Unless first you do something. And then he can take you after that. Not a God who is limited. But God. The sovereign God. That's our comfort. Now that contrast, as I've been saying, is between verses 1 through 3 and then verse 4, but God. And verses 1 through 3 are the clearest statement in the Bible on the truth of total depravity. The first point that we list in the five truths of Calvinism, total depravity. And children, young people, you should remember from Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism that total depravity is the teaching of the whole scriptures that by nature, that is of ourselves, as we are born of ourselves, we are incapable of any good. And we are inclined unto all evil. And that's exactly what verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 taught us. We just skim over it, but taught us three things. It teaches us that of ourselves we are corrupt in sin. And you hath he quickened who were dead. We are corrupt in the deadness, the corruption of decay in our trespasses and sins. We are morally decayed. We are dead. 
There is in us by nature no impulse toward God. There is in human nature, wherever it is, no impulse toward the true and living God. We are corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. He says in verse 3, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You can put it this way, within each one of us is a red light district. Within each one of us there is no sin that we cannot commit. We are as a corpse. We are hopeless of ourselves. We are corrupt in sin. That's the pronouncing of God in his gospel. We are number two. Total depravity is that we are captive to sin. We are corrupt in sin. We are captive to sin. We read in um, verse 2, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, we walked. So to be corrupt in sin does not mean that we don't do anything. But to be corrupt in sin means that we live willingly. We walk willingly of ourselves in a life of sin. Sin is not someone who has taken us against our will. We are not the slaves of sin in that we would want to be free, but we can't get free. But we are the willing servants of sin. We walk according to that sin. We live according to that sin in ourselves. We do not want God to rule over us. And then finally, we are corrupt in sin. We are captive, bound in sin, willingly. And finally, we are condemned in our sin. Corrupt, captive, and condemned in sin. We are, verse 3, by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Do we believe that the unbelieving reprobate sinner deserves the eternal wrath of God and will be condemned in it, in that wrath? The scriptures say that that is true of us as well, of ourselves. We are children of wrath, even as other. The wrath there is God's holy wrath against sin, his retribution, it's hell. And the scriptures are saying that this is true of you and of me. We are corrupt in sin of ourselves. We would walk in sin, we're captive to sin. And we deserve to be condemned in our sin of ourselves. But God. But God. We need a Savior. We need a Savior from sin. If I were to ask you, would you conceive a moment, would you imagine the greatest crisis that you could ever imagine? Maybe you don't need to imagine it. Maybe you're going through the greatest crisis in your life, the greatest trial, the greatest sorrow, the greatest anxiety that you could possibly imagine, and you cry out all the time, 
Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Now, I declare to you and I declare to me tonight on the authority of God's word that whatever that crisis is that so consumes you tonight, your sin, my sin against God is 10,000 times worse than the most consuming trial that you could experience. And I tell you on the authority of God's word from God's own lips that if your sin has been removed by this amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ, then I tell you that whatever it is that rises up against you tonight will not overcome you, cannot overthrow you, that you will be kept by the God who has saved you out of the pit of sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, that's telling us that there's only one who can help us in this life. There's only one who can rescue us. There's only one that can satisfy the debt of our sin but God. Look at what the apostle says that God has done, that contrast that I gave of being corrupt in sin, captive to sin, condemned in sin. Each one of those are answered in the verses that follow. We were corrupt in sin, but God, verse 5, quickened us together with Christ. We were dead but he made us alive in a new life. We were captive to sin. We were chained to sin. We were enslaved to the devil. We walked in our sins. But then verse 6, we were raised up in Christ and made to sit in heavenly places in Christ. We were condemned in sin. We were the children of wrath. Verse 7, but now, according to God's exceeding greatness, According to the exceeding riches of his grace, we stand as a testimony of God's grace throughout eternity. And we might ask, well, how did this happen? Why has God done this? And the answer is, not for anything that could be found or attributed to us, but solely Because he is God. Because he would. Because in the sovereignty of his love and grace, he determined to do this for us. Look at what we read, verse 4. First of all, why did he do this? He did this for his great love. For his great love wherewith he loved us. That's why he brought us out of that pit of sin. His great love is a great love. God's love is a great love because it is as great as he is. And he is almighty, eternal, all-sufficient. God's love 
defies explanation. He has loved us. Why? He has done so because he would in unconditional, a particular love. The apostle has talked of this in the opening part of the epistle. You will recall this, verse 4 of chapter 1. According, he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that's eternally, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It was his will that he would love us solely for his own sake and he would have a great love and that great love would be that he would not withhold even his own son for the removal of our sin. We're not talking of a human person merely, but the eternal Son of God in flesh. He so loved us. Then the apostle speaks of his rich mercy. That's verse 4. But God who is rich in his mercy. Why has he done this? Because he's rich in mercy. Mercy is pity. Mercy is compassion for that which is weak, for that which is in misery. It is the compassion and the pity of God whereby he does not simply see us and stand impotent to do anything as he sees us in our sin and misery, but it's his, the power of God to do good unto us. And the Holy Spirit says that that mercy is rich, that is, it is abundant, There is in the heart of God a treasury of mercy, and that treasury never runs dry. He knows all of our weakness, all of our frailty. He knows that we are dust, and yet his mercy, he never runs out of his mercies. His mercies are new every morning to us. Great is his faithfulness. His mercy endureth forever. And then finally, so it was out of his great love, his rich mercy, that's why, those two. And then number three, the apostle sums it up, it was his saving grace. King James put that in parentheses, and that's really to express that here's the reason of our salvation. His great love, His rich mercy, but it's his grace. By grace are you saved. Because God would be gracious as the gracious God to us. And grace, you remember, is favor to the undeserving, but we should really not say it that way. Grace is not favor to the undeserving, it's favor to the ill-deserving. We deserve ill. We deserve only the justice of God. But he is gracious. We are saved by his grace. So here's the great contrast. What we are, God declares. God declares this of every human being. This is 
the problem. We are fallen in Adam and corrupt, captive to sin, and condemned. But God, in his great love in Christ, his rich mercy, his saving grace, has saved us. But God, oh, that you and I would reckon with God in all of our trials and when life seems hopeless to us. Psalm 107, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, that we would reckon simply with God in every trial, in every trouble. But God, you say, because of the Holy Spirit working in you, I know I'm dead in sin. My sin is too great. You feel the burden of your sin. But then you need to read on. But God, you say, my sorrow is too vast. My problem is too great. My fears too terrible, too terrifying. You need to read on. But God, you say, I am alone. I don't have anybody. I don't have any, I don't have a reason to live. There's no I that ever pities me. We think that way. Read on. But God. The God who is revealed in Scripture through Jesus' Son. He is God, and he must be God to us in all of our thinking and in all of our living. He must be God to me, not just a concept, not just a word. He is God. Why would I be in want? Why would I have unrest? But God. The apostle now goes on to tell us that God, this great contrast is followed with a great blessing. Not only that he has saved us, but that now he has given us in salvation a great Blessing, and that great blessing is spiritual rebirth. He says, He, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Quicken is to make alive. He's referring to the biblical truth of what we call regeneration, to be born again with the life that is from above into the heart of a dead sinner. This is what the Apostle Paul began the chapter with, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive, you, hath, you are reborn who were originally born dead in trespasses and sins. <clears throat> that, was the <clears throat> that was the blessing that the Apostle Paul 
had in mind at the beginning of the chapter. This blessing, not of uh, the wonder of physical conception, of physical granting of life to us, that's a wonder. We do not know how that life is formed in all of its wonder within the womb of her that is with child, physical conception. But here he's speaking of something vastly even greater and more wonderful. He's not speaking of physical conception, but spiritual conception to be conceived out of death, out of corruption, to be raised, to be, to be born spiritually in that life, that life of Jesus Christ implanted within our hearts, that life that is from above, that principle of that life which now has inclinations and desires toward God so that we are no longer children of wrath even as others, but we are born with that life of Christ. The great blessing is not only election, not only the work of Christ and the cross, but that great blessing that we have received is a work of God in time when by grace he implants within our hearts the new life of Jesus Christ so that we are born out of death and he awakens that life through his word and by his spirit and that life becomes conscious and we hear him calling us and he gives us faith and we know that life of Christ within us. I'd point out to you that the apostle, when he speaks of this great blessing of being born again, is very personal. It's uh, interesting to follow the pronouns in this passage in verse 2. He begins with the you, you hath he quickened. And then he says in verse 2, where in time past ye walked, But that's as far as he goes with that pronoun. And suddenly, in verse 3, among whom also we, so Paul just put himself in there, and from then on he hath loved us, verse 4, even when we were dead, he hath raised, verse 6, he hath raised us up together, he made us sit together. In other words, when the apostle Paul is teaching these things, he can't leave himself out. That life to him is not an abstract teaching. He's not talking simply about what happens to other people. But he knows this by the grace of God in himself. It is personal. And he explains to us that this blessing of spiritual birth is rooted in God's joining us to Jesus Christ. Verse 5, He hath quickened us together with Christ. Verse 6, He's raised us and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So there really is the great blessing. The great blessing is that God by grace placed us 
in Jesus Christ, in union to Jesus Christ. God's eternal grace and God's eternal love and mercy is when he took us out of mere grace and placed us and united us to Christ. He has chosen us, Ephesians 1.4, in Christ. He's made us adopted in the beloved, says the apostle. We are in Christ by grace. And that's the great blessing. The blessing of God is not something that our flesh would crave. The blessing of God is not providentially arranging your life as you would want it. The blessing of God is not that he showers you with gold and silver, worldly things and ease, no sorrow or no tears. The blessings of God is not that he gives to you all kinds of things that are going to perish anyway. But the blessing of God is Christ when he unites you to him, to his life, to his righteousness, to his spirit, to his strength, when he gives you the imperishable life of Christ so that you will never die. It is Christ. God's blessings are not what he puts on us and not necessarily what he surrounds us with, but it's who he put in you. And he has not put in you this life, but his life. He has not put in you something from below, but something from above. And the apostle goes on to say, he has not only quickened you, but he has raised you up together. We are raised with Christ one day physically, but we are raised in death to Christ. And he hath made us sit together in heavenly places because Christ is ascended into heaven. We, belonging to him, are enthroned in heaven. We have the assurance that we will be taken to him in heaven. He works in us the aspirations that we want to be with him in glory. We are seated with him in heaven. These are the great blessings that God has given. A great contrast between what we are and what God has done. A great blessing for the greatest of purpose. And that's verse 7. That in the ages to come, he, God, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. He shows in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God's purpose in salvation, in our salvation, goes beyond us. He has saved us in order that we might be a display that we might be a show, a presentation of his grace. God does all things for his own glory. 
And he saves us so that the riches of his grace may be on display throughout all eternity in the new heaven and in the new earth, in the ages to come. The phrase ages to come could be a reference to ages in this life, in every age until the end of the world, God will be saving his church. We could interpret it that way. I think it's better to interpret it to the ages, the endless ages that are to come at the end of the world when the church is there. Why will the church be there? Why did God do this? To display the glory of his own being, the glory of his grace. You say, isn't that self-centered? And I respond, no. It is God-centered. And I say to you, if I were to enter into your house, and I would say to you, would you show me your riches, that which you boast in? And you probably are going to show me the pictures of your children, pictures of your grandchildren, and you'll say, my children, these are my jewels, God's children are his jewels. We are created in Christ Jesus to be to the praise of his grace. And one day perfectly, we shall be to the praise of his grace in that eternal age. What must be our response to this word of God? Our response must be, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Our response must be that we want to serve him, this great and only God. We want our life to be spent in the display of his grace. What must be our response? Our response must be comfort. Have thine own way. The confession that, Lord, thou hast made no mistake in my life. And so when our faith is assaulted through trial, when our sins mount up before us prevailing day by day, and when our path seems dark and stronger than we can endure, then we pray for grace to bring two words to our lips. But God. Amen. Lord, we confess that thy word is rich, thy word is true, thy word is profound. 
In that word, thou hast opened to us the treasures of thy own loving kindness in Christ Jesus. Thou hast explained to us the purpose of all things. Thou hast revealed to us that our hope and our trust is in thee, a sovereign God of sovereign grace and mercy. We pray that in a practical way we may remember that in this week when we are confronted by the strength of sin, we may not succumb, but say, but God, when we are tempted to despair under thy way, may we say this week, but God. May all the honor and the glory be thine alone. Amen.